Good evening, everyone. Broadcasting live from our new location, our new monastery. July, July 21st. Sorry about the lighting. We'll get try to get some get the light set up. But here we are. This is Robin is here. Robin and Eric is here, but he's downstairs. Um, so I noticed that I think we've gone through all the quotes. Today's quote is uh, the same quote as last year. I'm pretty sure we've now done a full year of quotes. I don't think we're gonna. I don't think we're gonna do them again, which means we need a, a new source. You have to think about it a bit. But I was thinking of maybe going through the through this book. It's a big one. That'll take us a while to get through the numerical discourses of the Buddha. We can just start tonight, no? I know what the first, we could just go through from beginning to end. Um, if it works, it's, it's good because it's it's got brief, uh, simple lists of, te of teachings. And then we can take those lists and expand upon them. So it gives me something to talk about. Goes from the Book of Ones, the Book of Ones to the Book of Twos and Threes and Fours, all the way up to the Book of uh, Book of what does it say Book of More Than Tens? I think is the last one. Book of Tens. Anyway, there's a lot of them. So the first, first 10 discourses, the first 10 passages from the Anguttara Nikaya. The Anguttara, the, the numerical discourses, is all the, all the Buddha, times that the Buddha gave lists of things uh, by number. He said 10 of this, 5 of this, 2 of this, 4 of this, 1 of this. They put them together and created a book out of them. Or a, a, it wasn't a book in the beginning, but eventually became a, a, a book, a catalog of these teachings in order of the number of things. So the first ten are in regards to the obsession of the mind. This is Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation. Thus have I heard, on one occasion the Blessed One was dwelling in Savad, at Savati in Jeta's Grove, <clears throat> Anattapindika's Park. This is where he spent most of his life, and uh, not most, but more, more than any other place. He spent in Savati in Jeta's Grove. So actually, unless spe otherwise specified, that's where it's understood that all these all the discourses in this book took place, some of them elsewhere, but if, if not specified, then in Savati. 
There the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus. Bhikkhus, Venerable Sir, those Blessed Ones replied. The Blessed One said this. We need the Pali as well, no? It's too good with that. It's too good to go with that. Nahang bhikkhuve. Nahang bhikkhuve anyang ekarupampi. I don't see any other uh, any any other rupa, any other form. Some rupa sami I don't see. I don't see any other form that so obsesses the mind. Jitang bariyadaya titati. What literally what? Uh, in, uh, Sort of surrounds and 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 becomes becomes fixed in uh, consumes and becomes fixed in the mind of a man. Other than the form of a woman, hmm. see that one coming. It's the one form that a man obsesses over. It's the form of a woman. Goes without saying. This is referring to an, a heterosexual man. Homosexual man, well, the form of a man, because number, number, sutta number six says, Nahang bikuyan yang ekaru pampi samanupasami yang ewang itia titang bariyadaya titati. I see no form that completely encompasses and becomes fixed in the mind of a woman in the form of a man. The form of a woman obsesses the mind of a man. The form of a man obsesses the mind of a woman. And Sutta number two, three, and four uh, are the same but with a different sense. So Sutta number two is, I don't see other sound, any other sound that is that obsesses a man's mind more than the sound of a woman. Same goes for the sound of a man. It obsesses the mind of a woman. Sex. Well, we're talking about gender and, and sex. It's an interesting, interesting phenomenon because it doesn't, Actually, if you if you think about it, it doesn't actually make much sense. Why do we have two genders? Why not three? Why not four? I mean, if you look at the the evolution of, of the physical evolution of a species, it makes some sense. But um, just philosophically, it's there's there's no reason for us to have two genders. It's just sort of happened that way. And as a result, we've created this uh, dichotomy. You know, you look at one person, you see them as a man. You look at someone else, you see them as a woman. It drives us crazy when we're not sure whether someone is a man or a woman. We have to spend some time, and an ordinary individual has, has to find an answer: is that a man or a woman? Because we're trained, we're we are. Uh, Obsessed, obsessed with gender, obsessed with sex. 
it's become quite interesting in modern times where we started to break down the gender barriers. There's, I read something, I think this, I think it's a big deal now uh, about uh, transgendered people being able to use whichever one washroom they like, you know, anyone being able to use whichever washroom they like. Anyway, the, the point, only point being that it's, uh, it's an issue that is in people's minds. What's interesting about this teaching, I think, leaps out of it, out of the page at me, is um, the, the, the concept of the nimitta. Because no one is masculine, or no one is a man or a woman. It's not, it's not real. But we we uh, we cultivate, or we give rise to the sign, the nimitta, of a man or a woman. You see someone, one of the signs, one of the, it's not sign is a bad word, it's what nimitta means, but a nimitta is the concept of something, you know. When you look at a cloud and it looks like a, a, a horse, there's no horse in the cloud, but at some point, the cloud forms just right so that you give rise to the nimitta of a horse, the sign of a horse, or the concept of the horse. Nothing in the cloud inherently that is a horse. When you look at my hand, what do you see? You see a fist, right? You say, if I ask you what this is, you say, this is a fist. But you watch closely. And if I slowly un, un, uh, unclench my fist, the fist disappears. The sign disappears. The, you know. the same as it happens with gender. You know, when someone changes their gender or when someone is transgendered, what gender are they? So what, what's interesting for a meditator is the reality that these things are, are all in the mind. They don't really exist. This is why the Buddha said, Nanimita gahi nanubhyanjana gahi. A meditator should not grasp the signs or the particulars. When you see a man or you see a woman, it should be seeing. You don't actually see a man. You see light. You see light touching your eyes. That's what you see. The man, the woman, that's the, the sign or the signal that you take out of it. If it's just seeing, it's just seeing. And the whole man, woman doesn't register, doesn't have any uh, meaning for you. And as a result, none of the likes or dislikes, the partialities. Because you can't cling to reality. You can't. If you see something as it is, there's no there's there's no response uh, of, of of desire or aversion. It's it's not in the in in the nature of the process. So we cling to our concept. We cling to 
the idea that something is good or something is bad, something brings you pleasure or so on, something is positive, even pleasure. When you experience pleasure as it is, it's, it's an experience. It arises and ceases. But when you grasp at the idea that this is a, an experience of you know, an enjoyable experience or something, We cling to ideas, we don't cling to the reality once you see it really as it is. Without man or woman, there's no problem. But that's not quite what this is about. What this is talking about is the intense, um, what is calling attention to, focusing on the intense attachment that is sexual desire, sensual desire, no, sexual desire a desire for the opposite gender, and that sort of points to the, the, the Buddhist conception of gender. That it's something that we've really created for the express purpose of enjoyment. So what better way to enjoy the things that you like than to provide them to each other, right? Pair off, become the source of the enjoyment for each other. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. I'll please you if you please me. That's what sex is. It uh, allows us to please each other, to feed each other's addictions directly. I can be your addiction. You be mine, I'll be yours. Right? That's basically what it's saying. We'll be each other's addiction. So just so enticing as a result. As a result, we become, uh, we become enslaved by it really enslaved. I mean, why are we attached? Why? Of all the things that you could enjoy, why would the human body be one? Something enjoyable. It's actually quite disgusting. Full of pus and blood and urine and feces and bones and flesh. There's nothing beautiful in the human body. The skin smells, the hair smells. It leaks out of nine different holes. Earwax, snot, spit, urine, feces. That's the reality. But because of our clever use of the human body to feed our addictions, we think of the body as something beautiful. It's beautiful because we know what it will bring us. It will bring us what we want, what we've come to perceive as pleasurable, good. Satisfying, but it's not. Right? So that's our something, some sort of teaching for the evening. Let's see if we have questions. I'm pretty sure we do. What is the Arahant Sutta? Is it available online? Um, I think there's more than one, actually. But um, 
I'm not really, I'm, doesn't really, I'm not really sure about that question. I think you have to be a little more specific about why that's important to you. I'm kind of like to focus on meditative questions rather than just finding suttas for people. I know I, I, I refused to answer a question earlier and somebody called me out on it. Oh, it's my choice. I don't have to answer any of your questions. What is the basic antidote or way to deal with desire and cravings directed towards humans? To deal with desires. Well, have you read my booklet on how to meditate? That's where I would start. Read it and put it into practice. It's my claim that it will help you to deal with desires and cravings. I don't quite understand directed toward human, but I think that's the answer. My partner wants to date other people. Mm. Well, there you go. Tonight was for you. Because she knows I plan to be ordained. It's funny. Sorry, it's not funny. I apologize. It's unfortunate. It's against my wishes because I have strong attachments. She would like to sleep with me until ordaining, into ordination, or finding a new boyfriend, whichever comes first. Do I end it? Oh dear. Well, I would probably suggest you become comfortable being celibate before you ordain because you know, ordination is about being celibate. It's not a magic trick that you become a monk and suddenly poof, you're celibate. I know you, you should be allowed to ordain. You don't have to become enlightened before you ordain, but um, you know, going from worrying about whether you're worrying about your partner seeing other people to boom, I'm a monk. I don't know. I would I would sort of resolve in your mind first the idea that sex is not what you're looking for. Now, it may even be that way already, and you're just not able to control it. But um, at any rate, it should be to the point at least. Well, you're okay with your partner going to find pleasure in other places. Elaine, we, we tried to put a uh, question mark in front. Oh, here, JDM is, is explaining but, okay, her question stands. How much effort is reasonable to ex exert to avoid giving in to the craving? Um, you know, it shouldn't be any effort, really. It should be effortless at, at its best. But it's a struggle. And you know, until you reach that point, you have to struggle with it. But the struggle isn't out of lack of effort. It's because... It, you're, you're imbalanced in the mind through desire but also through laziness and, and either strong concentration or, or strong effort you, your mind is not balanced try to balance the faculties but balance them using mindfulness once your mind is balanced you'll find it effortless it's not about effort it's about wisdom it's about seeing clearly 
You don't have to fight against your attachments. You just have to see them clearly. And that's the problem is no amount of effort is going to fix your problems. It's, um, it's mindfulness. Once you're mindful, it just slips away. Then you have to do it again. And you have to repeat. I guess the, the best way to understand true effort is the effort to do it again and again and again, to be mindful again and again and again. That's real effort, and that's tough. It's a real challenge. So it's not about how much effort, it's about how, how consistent, how consistently mindful you are. That's the effort. The effort to, effort to do it again. Every time I do sitting meditation, I have great difficulty feeling the rise and fall of the abdomen. I've been practicing for many months. I know tension, tension, or pain, pain. How long should my attention be focused on the abdomen, even when there is no rise and fall? Also, will this change through patience? It should. Um, I know some teachers tell you, well, if you can't find the rising and falling, even my teacher just says, just say sitting. You can say sitting, sitting instead. But you're not feeling the rise and fall, sometimes you're obsessing over it. I mean, that's why it's such a great object, is because it shows you your neuroses and, and, and your, your mental problem, the problems that you have, because you obsess over it, or there's something blocking you, something in your way, like stress or tension. If you can't feel the stomach, try putting your hand there. If you really can't feel it, try lying on your back. If you lie on your back, I don't think that there's anyone who won't be able to feel the stomach. And then you'll get a sense that, oh yes, in a natural state, that's how we breathe. We breathe, the stomach expands. It's just when we sit up, because we've cultivated certain um, characteristics during the time that we're sitting up. You know, when you're lying down, your mind thinks, relax. When you sit up, your mind thinks, get ready. You know, get ready to work, get ready to fight, get ready to speak, get ready to walk. You become tense. So it's a matter of changing that habit so that sitting is a time when you can be relaxed. That's just, you know, growing pains or, or not growing pains, but uh, the pain associated with the struggle associated with training. So you've been practicing for many months. I mean, having difficulty in meditation is, is par for the course. It's meant to be difficult. It's not just not just that you have to be difficult, it's meant to be. It's meant to challenge you. So if it's just challenging and you're, you're, it's not always there or it's not constant, well, bingo, that's reality. If you really never experience the rising and falling, well, then you have to kind of work at it. But if it's just difficult, welcome to the, welcome to the game. How are we doing? It's all for our questions today. Yeah, our European our European members have some difficulty because it's already early morning in Europe. Good time to get up and do meditation, but uh, not if you have to work the next day, I suppose. 
or work that day. Still, you could go to sleep early and wake up early. I know it's difficult, but not sure what else we could do. Suppose we did it earlier here, earlier here than people on the west coast of America. I mean, the, the unfortunate reality is that most of our followers are in America. We get, you know, I have, I, I have many students in Europe, but I'm not sure, that, sure if that's true. Most of the majority of viewers on YouTube, that's all I can say. But like, look at our, although this is a time thing, right? we should figure out, we should look at that actually. Which country and what region we have the most members coming on here and meditating? Because of course right now it's from America, but if you look at these peaks, we peak around 1300 UTC and 20 UTC, 2000. Anyway, this is the time we're doing it now. If we, we could find a way to do Mm. This is what we're doing. Is it convenient to try to stay in a kind of similar state as the one you are in meditation during your whole day as much as you can, and this state will show up from meditation? There's no state. I mean, it's important to be careful about the word state because that's. I mean, it's a, it's a buzzword for other types of meditation. And so if you're thinking in terms of meditative state, chances are you're still conceiving a meditation as something other than what this meditation is. Because this meditation, you shouldn't feel specifically like you're in a state. You will feel quite different, but it won't be a feeling. It will be a realization that your mind is clearer. That's all less judgmental it's really the feeling the only feeling you should get is a feeling that you're less judgmental it's just from observing yourself not judging not reacting as strongly or as often but but um, putting that aside I don't know the word convenient but it's important to try and cultivate non-judgmental awareness outside of meditation as well so absolutely when you're living your life if someone yells at you you should be mindful hearing if you get upset at something you say upset upset if you're angry you should say angry when you're walking you should say walking walking it's quite useful let's not say important but it's important but more importantly let's say useful it's useful in terms of your spiritual growth it'll, it'll help very much in uh, progressing and learning to see things as they are if you keep it continuous throughout the day. Oh, here's a question again, missing the cue, missing the question mark. If someone were to declare bankruptcy, can they become, can they then become a monk? Hmm. I don't know. I suppose if you've declared bankruptcy and gone through with it and you no longer owe any money, I don't know how that works. But if you no longer owe any money, then yes, 
I think it's, you've settled it before you become a monk. Problem is it might be considered stealing and, and you might have to be careful. It's, it's sort of a bad karma to declare bankruptcy. I would say, I mean, you could argue it anyway. You declare bankruptcy means you're not willing to pay your debt. You've taken something that you promised to give back and you're not giving it back, which is kind of stealing. I know it's, you know, modern times it's all twisted around, but technically it is stealing. You did borrow it with the promise to give it back, and once you don't give it back intentionally, um, some people would call that stealing. So I don't know that a bankruptcy is such a good idea. Unfortunately, I know, I mean... Honestly, so many people are in debt for such silly things nowadays. It's unfortunate. But don't go into debt. That's the, you know, sometimes you can't avoid it. It's unfortunate. Um, it's interesting, the question. Should a Buddhist go into debt? It would be an interesting question. I mean, obviously, everyone should avoid going into debt. But what does it mean to go into debt? Is it a problem? It's a complication. I mean, going into debt, obviously, is, is an unwanted complication. And from a Buddhist point of view, I think that's, that's magnified because we try to live our lives as simply as possible. I would imagine you could argue for the... Um, acceptance of an unpleasant state rather than going into debt. For this sort of reason, I mean, you, you end up with a promise to do something for someone, uh, i.e. give money back, pay, repay someone, but that's a promise that you're making, and that's, promises are problematic. Uh, I guess just the general point that it's a complication that should be avoided. But bankruptcy is is the part that's problematic. The paying it back because you promised. How do you feel about the meditation practiced in Thai forest tradition of Ajahn Man? I don't know. I don't know too much about it. I'm not too keen on Ajahn Man. I mean, seems to. I mean, obviously, a very powerful person. <laughs> But uh, based on his autobiography, it's not that impressive because he says some wacky things in, in this book, this biography written by a monk who is well known for the crazy things, that the controversial nature. So the monk who wrote this biography, Ajahn Man, has some fairly controversial things, activities. You know, he wrote an op-ed, scathing op-ed in one of the Thai newspapers criticizing the then prime minister, who a lot of people criticized, but doesn't seem like what an enlightened monk would do. He collected gold for the Thai government, which I think his followers are still doing to this day, which again seems not quite like what an enlightened monk would do. Things like that. Uh, and then he wrote this book saying that Ajahn Man talked to the Buddha and talked to Arahants who had already passed into Parinibbana, which is really quite absurd, but you know, people argue, they try to explain in a way, just not all that impressive to me. 
what's impressive is of course their their forest practice but i think people over romanticize that and yeah great they could live in the forest what big deal i lived in the forest it's actually not that impressive these monks who go traveling it's so so romantic the idea of this monk taking just his robes and bowl and going yeah it's nice but it's easy to try and it's easy to escape yourself you know, the people have been doing that for centuries and none of them became enlightened. Since, since time immemorial, monkeys do it. Monkeys live in the forest. They're not enlightened. Which is kind of a facetious sort of thing to say, but it is. it does raise a good point that just because you're off in the forest living a simple life, there's a power to it, but it's not exactly the power of enlightenment. Have you ever read the book Mosquito Coast? Skygo tries to go off and live in nature, and nature can be cruel and, and it can drive you crazy if you don't have the right, um, the right path. So, I mean, I, don't, I can't make any definitive statements about Ajahn Man, but I can make definitive statements about some of the things that have been written about him and about the person who wrote them. That's about it. I'm not all that interested. As I say, I, I normally try to refrain from talking about other traditions simply for the main reason that I don't know too much about anything else but what I do. And of course there's the other reason is that it gets me in endless amounts of trouble with those who do. Overall the practice of meditation has had great benefit on my life. Every other day I found myself compunctured Something annoyed me. What shocked me is how sensitive I am to the object of frustration. I felt my mind shocked by great frustration and anger. Is this expected? Yes. See, because part of meditation is opening your heart. Right? We spend a great deal of our time protecting ourselves, which is reasonable. Um, but our protection is to avoid and to react and to quickly try and escape problems. Suppose someone comes to you with something, um, you know, they, they, they say something that ticks you off. Well, you might get angry, but then quickly you, you, you try and smooth things over with them, if they're your friend or your family member. You avoid the situation, rather than really accepting the fact that this made you angry. We do that because we're not normally equipped to deal with the anger. When you practice meditation, you, you, you end all that. If someone makes you angry, you, you stay with the anger. You don't try and avoid it and laugh it off, change the subject, you know, find some way to avoid the, the, the conflict. You actually examine and study the conflict and learn to let go. It's, it's a much more um, profound sort of solution to your problems, but as a result, it's much more, um, you know what I mean, it's, it's, danger. it's dangerous in the sense that it forces you to confront the emotions, and they can be quite strong emotions. And if someone comes to you, says something mean and nasty, and you get upset inside, but immediately you find a way to joke or laugh it off, you've avoided the problem, you've avoided the situation, you've avoided how this makes you feel. So, so do that continuously, begin to uh, approach reality, and you'll start to cultivate this sort of acceptance of 
the way things are. And the problem is, in the beginning, the way things are is quite unpleasant. All of these emotions inside then have a, strong, a greater opportunity to arise and to remain. There's a danger of meditation, but it's not meditation. It's not the fault of the meditation. It's the fault of our avoiding and building up these reactions without actually dealing with them. Every time it comes up, we get upset about it. The upset is there, but we we avoid it, find a way to to um, not have to deal with it, and so it builds up and builds up and builds up. It doesn't solve the problem, and then eventually you do break down, and it does overwhelm you. But then right away until either well it can happen people can just be ordinary people are in ordinary normal people you know, normal most people are able to deal with these things sort of imperfectly but to the extent that they can live their lives some people it gets to an extreme that they decide to come and practice meditation or find another solution, take drugs, alcohol, take medication. How many people are taking psychoactive drugs in this world? I got an email today. Should I go into it? Maybe I shouldn't even go into it. Robin read the email exchange. Someone called me narrow-minded, closed-minded, because, again, it's this issue of not accepting meditators for our courses if they're taking psychoactive drugs. I guess this is my only venue. I have to vent here, right? If I'm not going to talk about it here, where am I going to talk about it? But I've talked about it before, so let's not harp on this. But talking with Robin about it, I am set on this idea of, of, uh, of not allowing this. There's two reasons. I mean, our organization is not equipped to deal with the liability of someone who is who has serious mental issues. Um, so that's sort of the line that we're going with. But from my point of view, it's it's deeper than that. Um, first of all, there's the the fact that these drugs are affecting your mind. They're affecting your brain anyway. Affecting your brain brain chemistry. But it's not really that that will get in the way. And it, it's the intention to medicate yourself, the intention to avoid the problem. And this speaks to your question, because it's that very intention that we're trying to change. So if you're not, if you're not, if you're not able to look at your problems as they are, we can't even start the meditation practice. I mean, we can't even begin the process let alone get to the, the conclusion. Can you gain benefit from meditation? But uh, Yes, but um, the idea that you could progress in meditation using take, well-taking, well-avoiding your you know, these, these very states that we're talking about, uh, it shows a misunderstanding of meditation, which is reasonable. Most people don't understand meditation. Most people in this world who know who have heard the word meditation before don't understand meditation in the same way that we do that i do that our tradition does for most people meditation is a, an escape it's a means of entering into a pleasant state a peaceful state 
mostly understood to to become permanent you know eventually somehow this state can be prolonged to the point that it is constant but that's not how it works it's not constant it's not eternal it's temporary that type of meditation can never be the solution because it's not permanent so that type of meditation sure it's fine if you because you're just covering up your emotions anyway you're just and you're transcending them this meditation doesn't do that it's all about dealing with these things that you're covering up with this medication the medication doesn't solve your problems doesn't even directly address them it just floods your 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 bloodstream with serotonin as far as i understand for the most part it's usually about keeping the serotonin in the bloodstream or something like that it's called sris serotonin reuptake inhibitor keeps the serotonin in the bloodstream i think something like that keeps the serotonin somewhere usually serotonin because serotonin feels good which you know has nothing to do with the actual problem but it's you're drugging yourself for the most part and there's all these awful side effects and then you know there's all these it's designer drugs you know because i made one drug well you know you can't you, you can't copy me so you make your drug and it works a little bit differently and then putting all that you know that's a whole other issue in and of itself is how these drugs are imperfect but even if it's a perfect drug that represses the problem what are you doing why are you meditating you know i mean what's going to be the benefit of meditating if you're avoiding that elephant in the room it's like it's like there's an elephant in your living room and you're, you're looking around you know trying to clean your room wondering why there's crap all over the place why does my house smell like an elephant blaming other people cleaning cleaning up you know, picking up the broken dishes all the while you know not paying any attention to the big elephant in the middle of your floor anyway that's a bit of a rant i hope that i'm not i'm not closed minded i'm, I'm open to discussion but I'm fairly well established in the view the view that it's not going to work. I mean, I've had meditators who were on medication before and I've seen what it is. It's it's not really productive. It's not to say, I mean, I don't want to discourage those of you who are on medication. Sure, practice this meditation, but you should understand that the end game is giving up your medication, which I think most people do, but um it it, ha it it's a very much a part of the process to get to begin on the path you have to begin by giving up your medication there's no other way i think I mean, it's not even to say that you couldn't be on it but the, the the desire to take it is the wrong intention when when the problem comes up or when you refer to your problems your mental problems if your answer is taking medication you you you're not even in the right frame of mind. That's the idea. Is it good to hear a sermon or read the Dhamma before meditation? I would say it's better to do it the other way. I have noticed that the mind does not wander a lot when I do that. Mm, that's true. Reading sermons, reading discourses can give you sadha. But if you want real understanding, it's better to meditate first. What you're talking about is most likely sadha. Sadha makes confidence makes you 
uh, it, it composes the mind. It's a good argument. Good before, good after. Do you want to really understand? I guess, I guess either way, it's important to be both. If you're not meditating, the Dhamma will be very difficult to understand and easy to misunderstand. Um, I would say it's not so much before or after, it's along with. Are you meditating? If you're not meditating, study will be useless. Study before and study after, I guess. The answer. Is it okay to have a blog describing one's personal abuse story at the hands of others as a means to help oneself and other victims of abuse? Yeah, I mean, the whole idea there is of coming clean and, and accepting, which is very very much a part of the practice. So, But it's a mechanical, you know, it's, it's an artificial means. You're not actually dealing with it. You're just writing, but writing is an indirect way of helping you to come to terms. I mean, what are we doing here? We're just reminding ourselves of the reality. So when you write out something that actually happened to you, that's in a sort of a roundabout way doing the same thing. It's much more indirect, but it has the same sort of general effect of coming to terms with reality. I mean, the alternative is denying it happened, right? Some people actually repress their memories or are in denial. Um, many more people just avoid it and try to not think about it. So writing about it is a great way to help you come to deal with it, to come to terms with it. Sounds like a good thing. I mean, what you don't want is for that to be your answer because it's not an answer. But is it okay? Yeah, I think that's great. Talking about things that have happened are great. Is great. But within reason, you could probably find some reasons not to say certain things. You know, maybe uh, if you if you write about graphic abuse, right? If you detail graphic abuse, it can be problematic. For some people, it can be a trigger for some people. So things like that. But in general, writing a diary about your own experiences, I think as a Buddhist, is probably a really good thing. Writing about things that are hard for you to come to terms with. But what you don't want is for that to be the answer, sort of a, a crutch, where you write about everything, and you write always about it. Don't expect it to solve things. There's no solution. There's no trick. You can't find a, another way out besides coming to see it clearly. Uh-oh, here we go. I'm going to have, a, I'm going to have a, a debate here. Are you suggesting that someone who uses antidepressants to avoid crippling depression cannot meditate with the intention to reach enlightenment? I'm not saying they can't meditate. I'm saying they probably won't reach enlightenment. Uh, on the antidepressants, but yes, I mean you're you're expressing it quite clearly is that they're avoiding the depression, which is what the meditation is trying to come to terms with. If you're avoiding it, then how are you going to come to terms with it? That's the object. You see, this isn't meditation to find peace and uh, you know peaceful state. It's meditation to learn about your mind your depression. That's the object of meditation. So if you're avoiding it, you hit the nail on the head. That's why it doesn't work. Well, it's, 
if people react to this quite strongly this isn't the first time we've had this argument there was another guy who wanted to come and he got very upset at me because I'm, I, it's not, and, and I want to qualify that. You're welcome even to come here to meditate. You're welcome to, we're talking about maybe taking an online course. Maybe that's a good, happy medium. But you know, the online courses are also designed to take you to enlightenment. So I'm not yet convinced that it's such a great fit for someone who's taking medication because you're avoiding your, you're taking it to avoid your problem. I guess the thing is it feels exclusionary but it only feels that way because people don't understand meditation understand what we're teaching here it's not just meditation if you want a definition of what we're doing in these courses it's dealing with our mental issues we all have mental illness that's what we're dealing with that's what we're looking at that's the object of our meditation so if your practice is to avoid it through whatever means then uh, you're not doing what we're doing. It's as simple as that. It's not a judgment thing. It's not. I think that's the thing. People feel like they're being judged. Oh no, no, you, you, you're hopeless. Kind of what we're talking about, right? No, I'm not being judged. It's um, it's just an understanding of of what the meditation process is. It's, when did you see an incremental approach of that for someone who's on medication? I know we talked about that. I mean, sure, sure, and that's what I was saying is people can come and meditate, but at the so at the very least, the answer is it's because of how intensive the courses are. These courses are an intense, direct path to enlightenment is the idea, you know. So, if you want an incremental approach. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's how I would that's how I would recommend it is that you slowly begin to practice meditation, but it has to be coupled with a slow decrease in medication. I know you said I can't tell people to, and I can't tell people to go off their medication, but you have to understand that that's the end game. Why are you practicing this so that you can eventually stop taking your medication directly? It's not an indirect like oh, once I get really progressed here get really far in the meditation, I won't need my medication anymore. It's not even like that. The only way to progress is to slowly so slowly begin to uh, directly approach and directly face your problems. So yeah, I mean, it is, it is for all of us, it's gradual, but um, you have to understand that that's the practice. So... For someone who's on that sort of medication, I would, I would encourage them to. No, I can't encourage them, right? <laughs> I would have them understand that to progress in this practice, you have to find a way to get off them. You have to find a way. I mean, the meditation will help you get off of it, but you have to understand that. If your idea is, no, I'm going to take this medication and practice insight meditation, I would argue it's not possible. It's not possible. It's very difficult. Highly unlikely that you're going to progress simply because it's opposing mind states. Your your intention to avoid and your intention to face. I think that's clear. If 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 not, 
appealing or, or pleasing. It's not acceptable. I understand that. Um, I, I mean, it's a nice idea, but the only problem I have is that um, it doesn't like as I've had meditators like this who people are on medication and everyone's different of course but many people are comfortable taking their medication and are able to meditate but they don't get results so they may not come to that realization what I'm, I'm not saying that these people are hopeless I'm saying it's not clear to these people and they're not They've never been told, and it's never been. And this, this, I guess, this ultimatum has never been put. You see, if you're not ever challenged into giving it up, take. I mean, take it like. A, I don't want to sound like judgmental, but so so understand. This is an extreme case, but take someone who is like a a, a drug addict or anything that we use as a, as a as a safety blanket. If you tell someone to give it up, it's un, it, it's it's a threat. You are a threat to them. This is the I think you could argue that this is the reaction why we're getting such a strong reaction because these people are comfortable with these things. It's a safety blanket. You tell them to you tell anyone to give up something that's that's a source of comfort for them. You were saying this, I think, right? This is what you were saying. That's you know you're the threat. I'm no longer the the, the support. And I think what I was going to say when you were talking about that is uh, it's not an easy decision to, to, to come to these drugs. So not only is it something that's, that's um, comfort, part of their comfort zone, but it's also something that people don't go, come to lightly. So once you get on board with taking the medication, it's that much stronger. You know, you feel backed into a corner and you have to support it. So this, Rather than just being something you'd say, oh, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll not, I won't take it. But now you've committed to taking, to doing something serious. And once you commit to it, the mind that commits to something that's fairly significant can be stubborn. You know, you back, you, you know, you, you be, this is like this whole, um, I don't know what it is, but, um, why people feel threatened anyway, you know, because it's a very, very significant thing that they're doing. and It strikes close to home. If you tell someone, you know, need to go off their medication, for example, if you were to say that, um, it, it's, it's easily interpreted as a criticism. You know, you are you are mentally, you know, it, it hits that, that nerve yeah, easily, I think. There's something wrong with you, that kind of thing. As well as their doctor and their treatment or society. Mm. Yeah, right. There's a lot of support for mm -hmm. And you come to the idea that it's okay, it's normal. Because yeah. it is normal, everyone's taking these silly drugs. I have to be on the other side of the fence. It's not normal. It's not right. It's not the answer. 
not even much of a solution. Do some people survive through it, get better from it? Sure, sure. I think you, there's an argument to be made for it to be a useful crutch for some people. Yeah, useful crutch. I'm not even convinced. A crutch, uh, a means of not killing yourself. Yes, understand. So useful. Some people without these drugs might kill themselves. And if because they don't kill themselves, later on they're able to deal with their problems and they grow up. Or, you know, grow up. They grow out of these problems. They, uh, there I was, kind of judging. I didn't mean to say it like that. I apologize. Not grow up, but they uh, outgrow. That was just wrong phrasing. I was... I don't really believe that it's the maturity or something. I apologize for saying that. Um, they, uh, but it's kind of the words that we use because we're all growing, right? Spiritual growth. So that's all that I meant. Um, because I was thinking of a friend of mine. I was with her. And we had these interesting discussions. She was on drugs. She was on medication for clinical depression, and I was, we were both teenagers, and I was like, you know, I, I was, I've been depressed since I was eight, six, I don't know, I was always depressed when I was a kid, I never took medication, so we had these kind of arguments about it, because I would have been, I'm sure I would have been given similar medication to her, but she's outgrown it, she's now married, I haven't seen her in many years, but really good person, uh, but she had mental problems, I mean, we all do, but she, you know, she was really pretty strong you know it's hard to deal with um, a really sensitive nice loving person really good person and uh, so it's, that's what I meant by gr grow out of it or, or grow up because she really did she she was able to she was just she had her head on straight she just had strong emotions basically and that's really what I would say is her emotions were quite strong and as a result she couldn't deal with them and she her parents put her on this medication it didn't really help her it made her feel awful and eventually she her head was on straight so she knew she had to get off of it and she got off it so i mean that that's i think a success story as far as the med medication goes uh, i'm not trying to trying to demonize these things i don't think they're the real demon but you, you, you have to go through that. If that's your plan, then go through it. And if eventually you can get off these drugs. I think the problem now is that people feel that they're just going to take these drugs for the rest of their life. Well, fine, but that's going to get in the way of your medication. meditation. There's no, and there's no way around that. That's the real problem, I think. I'm not Buddha. I don't know. You know I don't have all the answers. The Buddha didn't give clear instruction on this. So you can say I'm wrong, I don't mind. I might very well be wrong. But I'm pretty upset in this sort of line of thought. So you think that's closed-minded, that's fine too. Call me a jerk, call me a narrow-minded imbecile. I don't think you stand alone in this body because most applications for things like meditation courses ask Is it? Well, this woman today, I shouldn't, we shouldn't be too much about confidential information, but this person today was uh, saying that, that the doctors were on their side. Well, of course, the doctors were, the friends were. Right, but, but the doctors wouldn't be aware of the country, of course, not at all. And 
Sure, but they, they've got to be aware of meditation courses. They've got to have... No, because no. most people, when they think of meditation, they think of the tranquility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's it. Yeah, her, she was going to get her doctor to write me a note. Her doctor was going to write me a note explaining things to me. No, I, oh. I think it would be... I would have liked to read that note. That would have been in a real way. I really, really would have been interested to hear what the doctor had to say. The similar courses that are offered by other organizations, I believe. Mm. Sure. I mean, take Goenka. I'm sure. What do they do? You know? They, they okay. And if you're on medi medication, I don't know yeah. what the response would be, but they definitely ask about it. Not that we really care. They're not us. But no, it would be interesting to know what the Goenka group does, at least sort of in a passing sense. Oh, I think we're getting, let's see what we've, what the comments are on this. During my meditation, I have vision of symmetrical shapes. What is it? Is it common? Is it just my mental projection? It's an image. You're seeing something. You know what that means? That means you should say to yourself, seeing, seeing. Nanimita gahi nanum yanjana gahi. Don't worry about what it is, the details, the signs, the particulars. It's seeing. The Buddha said, dipte diptamatang bodhisati. When you see, let it just be seen. Even with your eyes closed, it's just seeing. That's what that is. It's, you know what else it is? It's impermanent, it's unsatisfying, and it's uncontrollable. It's not worth clinging to. If you meditate on it, you'll see that. Once you see that, you'll let go of it. Once you let go of it, you'll be free. Once you're free, you'll say, I'm free. Nothing more to do. What about someone with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder? Shouldn't they take medication? Especially since those disorders can be very biologically based. I would argue they shouldn't. Um, you know, the reason why we have to take medication is because we have to survive in a society that expects it. What did they do before there was medication? Did they die? You know, maybe they killed themselves, but some people say that it's all just a modern thing, you know. We are just not able to deal with these things anymore. My schizophrenia, I think, is a good one. I'd really love to have, and it would have to probably be in Asia where there are no laws and liabilities, but to have a meditator who is a schizophrenic and help them through it, you know, without any medication. If, they, if, we, could, if we could both survive that ordeal, I think it would be great. The schizophrenia is just, is just hallucinations. The schizophrenics hallucinate, as I understand, and the problem is they react to the hallucinations. I was talking to a schizophrenic in in Mississauga on Waysak, and actually talked to him about coming to meditate um, with me. He said he would. He said he would contact me. He still hasn't, but he didn't believe I could help him. So that's probably why he hasn't contacted me, because he says he says he can't avoid getting paranoid about his hallucinations. The paranoia is automatic, he said. So, difference of opinion. We argued a little bit about it. He was, he, I think he was impressed with what I was saying, but he was skeptical. Bipolar? I mean, bipolar, what does that mean? I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe there's some serious bipolar that is organic. There may even be problems with the brain, you know. 
brains can be different. So you have a brain that's problematic, but it's still just chemicals. It's not the paranoia. Even thoughts, you know, some people have thoughts like, I want to kill my mother and father. Suppose you have this thought, I want to kill my mother and father. That would stress most people out to no end, right? And they would think they're crazy, right? But that's the problem, you see, it's just a thought. The thought, I want to kill my mother and father, it's not the desire to kill your mother and father. You don't have to be afraid of that thought. It's just a thought. It doesn't mean you're going get to get up in the middle of the night and kill your parents. It means you had a silly thought. But we do this with everything, right? We have thoughts and we, think, we feel guilty about them. The mind tricks us in this way. The mind, not, not even tricks us, the mind is just crazy. The more you don't want to think a thought, guess what, right? The more you think it, it's funny how that happens. Because you're giving power to it. You're, you're, you're emphasizing that thought by suppressing it, by rejecting it. And the funny thing is that the mind re responds by bringing that thought up again and again at the most inopportune times. That's how insanity occurs, and, uh, you know, that's how, over, in an oversimplified way, that's how people go crazy. Because they drive themselves crazy, rather than just seeing things as they are. So, something, what is biology-based is really chemicals, it's not your reactions. That's our claim. In relation with antidepressants, do you see any conflict between meditation and using something like ayahuasca as your two tools to understand and heal your depression? Look, there's only one tool that allows you to un create understanding. It's not ayahuasca. It's mindfulness. It's sati. There's only one tool. It's the mind. Nothing physical will cultivate understanding. Now, what something like ayahuasca might do is provide you with experiences that force you to give up uh, beliefs. So that's good. These, I mean, it might do even more. I don't, I'm not really clear on DMT, right? Or DHT or whatever it's called. Um, what it does, my uncle was talking a lot about this, and how you go shoot off into the stratosphere and if you end up being in other places and opens your mind, yeah, okay, I could argue, you could argue that all of that's good. Um, but let's be clear that that's not a tool for, un it's not a tool for understanding. And this is, you know, so many, so many of these uh, solutions or tools come simply from a misunderstanding of what meditation is. Meditation is very simple, very direct and very much incompatible with other tools. So, ayahuasca should not have any part in your meditation practice. If you want to do it to sort of open your mind or whatever, okay, I mean, you could argue that that's helpful. It's only helpful before you meditate. During the time you're meditation, meditating, it should have nothing to do with it. What you want in meditation is the most ordinary, unadulterated state possible. You want the most boring, ordinary you state possible. You don't want to influence, affect, fix, control, regulate your experience at all. You want the unadulterated version, the unabridged, the uncensored version of your mind. That's what you want. No additives, no artifices, 
no crutches, just you and, and mindfulness. You, yourself, and your mind, that's all you want. That's the hardest thing, to not fix, to not control, to not regulate, and to deal with that unregulated mind, the insanity of the mind. You feel like you're going insane sometimes. You're not. I mean, it's not dangerous. It's just allowing that insanity that's inside um, to, to work itself out without judging it, without reacting it, to it, without making it worse. Suppressing it only makes it worse. A lot of people doing that. Conflict, I, I don't know. I mean, as I said, don't do it while you're meditating. But for people who have done it, I don't know. I don't really know what effect, if it has long-term effect on the brain, that can be problematic. But only in a general sense. As long as you stop before you start meditating. But don't do it while you're meditating. Sorry. I know that's a problem. People like to take drugs when they meditate. Misunderstanding. I mean, not misunderstanding, but different understanding of meditation. You can't practice this meditation if you're intent upon taking drugs. How about how is the story about the man who was drunk for a week and then became enlightened different from somebody taking medication? Right, so it's not the taking the medication, it's the intent to take the medication. You're, you're taking the medication to avoid the problem. This guy was drunk and then all he wanted was to be sober. His whole intention, um, that's a good question, his whole intention was to be sober. There's a little bit of commentary on that story as well, like he sobered up, right? There's some kind of magic involved that because of the power of his, his grief and because of the power of his intention and the power of the Buddha, he was magically sober all of a sudden. I mean, I think there's some commentary that says to that extent. But it has to be said, a person who is drunk, if they suddenly become desirous of becoming enlightened, you could argue that they no longer want to avoid the problem. They no longer want to drown themselves in alcohol. He wasn't avoiding a problem, but he was cultivating pleasure. You know, he was, he was trying to fix his mind through alcohol. It's, you know, alcohol is a great way to make things seem happy all the time. But when this when this dancer died, his his favorite dancer woman, he was in love with her maybe, suddenly died. It just you know it just woke him up, and he realized that this was ridiculous what he was doing. So it's the view you see. It's about the difference between the mind and the body. Can you meditate on antidepressants? Oh, probably. But what is your mind? What is your intention? Is your intention to approach the depression, or is it your intention to avoid it? Are you ready to experience things as they are? Because taking, you know, the, taking the, the medication is is antithetical to that. You're taking the meditation to medication to avoid it. Make it easy. You know, anything that makes your meditation easy is a sign that you're not ready to meditate. You're you're avoiding the problem. Okay, lots of questions, but we're way over an hour, so I'm going to have to cut it off here. I'll cut it off at the last question, and we're going to do a, what do you call a, a shotgun round, I think it's called, I don't know, where suddenly we do everything quickly. Some brief answers here. If I'm not, if, you're, if the answers don't 
suffice from here on in, you'll have to ask it again tomorrow. Mm. Coincidence. My question is, is it ignorant to wait for my karma to manifest or strive towards it? You shouldn't worry about the past or the future. Just live in the present. There's my answer. Uh, Sanka says drinking was only holding him back. He was ready to become enlightened. Yeah, you see, commentary has a lot of things to say about those stories. Context. These stories, and that's important. I mean, regardless of whether you believe what the commentary has to say, context is important. Just because it worked once, there's a lot of context involved with those stories. Sometimes I find myself in an inner mood of sadness. I can't, if I just try to open the mood, any tips? Meditate. Read my book on how to meditate. I meditated for a while. Get upset. Question everything so much. Why did you get upset? I'm just seeing it, how silly it was. Hmm. No, there's just a feeling I'm not going to cling to it. It was just this the feeling. No, that's a good sign. On the, uh, on, it's a sign that you're on your way but enlightenment is much more profound enlightenment is the cessation of suffering it's an experience that changes you in, in, in uh, changes you forever okay that's all for tonight if you are un, if you are uh, unsatisfied with the answers you're welcome to ask them tomorrow you're welcome to go and write scathing comments on my youtube videos you're welcome to send me scathing emails it's all good you're welcome to go meditate on how awful a person i am but most of all you're just welcome to continue meditating so have a good night everyone see you all tomorrow <laughs>